0: More than seventy percent of LP fees are generated from Orca, and for Alcoin pairs, that's more than ninety percent. So they are in like a pretty good spot as far as DEXs go. But if you look at like the past seven days and run the numbers, they would have made roughly four hundred and forty thousand in revenue. And if you look at the past thirty days, and if you look at the numbers, they would have generated a theoretical like two point three two million in revenue. I know dad's laughing because I <laughs> you know, nobody
1: play. loves annualizing numbers <laughs> more than Ren. Not a single human on this earth. <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. March is just around the corner, and I wanted to make sure to give you a quick reminder to not top-tick your prices of your DAS London tickets. If you use code 0X10 at checkout, you can lock in a 10% discount on your ticket. Don't miss out on your chance to get ahead of the curve. I'll see you in London. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We are joined today by Ren and Brick to bring you guys another analyst roundtable. The Blockworks research team is back at it again. Recording this episode on January the 22nd, so this Tuesday should be going out the following Thursday, uh, and we are excited to jam on the latest market happening. So Sam, maybe I can toss things over to you to kick us off on the news and governance updates of the week.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So over in the Cosmos ecosystem, we have a signaling proposal up on the uh, Cosmos Hub forum to onboard Noble as a Cosmos Hub consumer chain. With the idea of uh, you know sharing some of that revenue back with the hub, although that exact percentage of revenue share is still TBD. This is just basically a signaling proposal to make sure that there's validator buy-in and that there's general support to add Noble as a uh, as a consumer chain of the Cosmos hub and to leverage Atomy asset for security. And tangentially to that, Osmosis is looking to add support for Noble USDC as a gas token uh, on its platform as well. So that's that's pretty neat too. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts on these two governance props? I think Noble generates
0: fees every time an asset passes through the chain, if I'm not wrong. And anytime like, someone makes a transfer between like two chains, as long as it's a Noble asset, it has to go through Novo. So pretty much a guarantee that like Novo generates a fee regardless of like where the Noble asset is sent from. And too, so I think that over time they do generate like a significant amount of revenue but if you think of Novo as like kind of something similar to cctp on let's say like the evm chains where you can bridge uh, usdc for free to be honest um, other than the gas cost i'm not sure if that like dynamic stays long term right like there might be something where like the fees have to go lower over time because you're looking at like The EVM where you can bridge USDC using CCTP for free. Whereas on Novo, you might be paying, uh, I want to say it's 10 bits, but definitely uh, double check me on that. So that fee might have to go down over time. But overall, I think like Novo will generate a sizable amount of revenue, especially as like Cosmos and all of the consumer chains take off, especially with like, for example, Liquid Stake DYDX, which I know you're going to talk about in a bit later Sam um, I don't have huge thoughts on Osmosis looking to add support for Nova USDC as a gas token to be honest
1: yeah I, I'm on that latter point I think it's exciting that they're thinking about this I know you can already use like Atom as well as Osmo um, and anybody who's interacted with the Cosmos ecosystem has landed on a chain that they want to use without gas it's, it's inevitable in that ecosystem right now so the idea to add token other tokens as gas i think is a no-brainer especially osmos is in a great position to do that uh, because they've built that fee abstraction model and of course they are a deck so they do have the liquidity to make the swap transaction um yeah i think all, all around that just works towards building a better ux which is an absolute necessity if you really want to bring more users on chain Yeah, big plus one on the uh, landing on a Cosmos
2: chain without the native token that's used for gas. That is a huge pain in the ass. And I think also to your point on CCTP, Ren, like if you go to cctp.money, there's only like, you know, a finite number of chains that you can move between. I think by Noble doing this with the Cosmos hub, maybe it can kind of be a better a better avenue to move more quickly, I suppose, to integrate new chains versus, you know, Circle as the maintainer of that centralized UI is potentially maybe a little bit slower moving to add new chains. So I think maybe that's a good alternative. But uh, you did mention that I was going to bring up DYDX, so I will do that right now. There's a couple things in the forum uh, from Pstake, Stride, Quicksilver, basically everyone battling to launch a DYDX LST and chatting about different designs on the forum. Uh, some of the differentiating factors are supporting minority validators because the top two validators have a pretty significant market share over there. Um, dual governance structures, similar to how LIDO was talking about giving stetholders veto rights over LIDO voters uh, in the case of like an existential threat to uh, Ethereum itself. Um, or compounding the rewards back into DYDX tokens from USDC to increase your stake weight prorata for that uh i guess for for more uh greater usdc staking rewards and stride even hinted at a st holder uh token airdrop uh for people who uh buy that lst over others in the early days so definitely a lot of competition here heating up over here as i'm sure everyone can imagine how nice it would be to hold a uh a perp stacks token that actually generates real yield in usdc i know we've been talking about that for what feels like about a
1: year on this show now but I don't know if anyone has any thoughts there either. One of the things you mentioned actually was the idea of supporting minority clients, or sorry, validators. And I think that's something that the community probably needs to think pretty hard about, because if you look at most Cosmos chains, generally it's around about hundred validators. Um, and that's about the same for DYDX. I think there's 60, if I have that right. Uh, but the concentration of voting power is is very, very concentrated towards the top half. So, it only takes two validators to hit that 33% threshold that is needed to halt the chain. Uh, to hit that 66%, which is that more dangerous threshold, you actually hit that at seven validators. Um, so ideally, you know, you could kind of add another zero behind both of those numbers to get in a better spot. Uh, so I, I would like to see <clears throat> that being prioritized as the chain matures. I think on the note of
0: um, minority validators, this is probably bit more important for DYDX and your standard like proof of stake network because on DYDX v4 validators do have an in-memory order book and so you kind of have to deal with a lot of these challenges of MEV how do you sort of distinguish between network jitter and like a validator actually extracting MEV and that's why you really need an equal distribution of the stake to make it so that like it's not like just two market makers uh, sort of validating all of the blocks. That would lead to a pretty centralizing dynamic over time, given the amount of like volume and MEV potentially available on DYDX v4.
1: And it's worth noting why they moved to an app chain, right? The v4 announcement blog post was literally titled DYDX v4, full decentralization. So that was the goal of, of the whole thing, was circled around, we're going to an app chain because we can decentralize. Um, so it's it's not something you can just, you know, have out of the starting gate, right? I don't think I'm not faulting them for being in this position by any means, but it is something that needs to be continually built towards. Um, and so because of that I, is why I say, I think it's important for the community to kind of think about uh, some programs to get some stake towards the bottom half of the validator set for sure. Yeah, the main part of there that stuck out to me personally was
2: just the Stride token airdrop to their LST holders. I just find it super interesting that... <laughs> You know, the, people saw Alida's playbook and those network effects, they happen very, very, very quickly in the early life of an LSD. And I think we're going to see this continue to play out over the next month or so. So definitely looking forward to watching that one. Ren, did you have something to say? There? Yeah, I
0: have a quick question for you. All. So obviously, like for liquid staking for virus for like one token, say like ETH LSTs, there's obviously like a network effect in terms of like liquidity volume etc right and that's kind of why like lido has such a dominance uh for like if lst for a sort of like generic lst issuer like stride right if one of their lsts does really well say like stake that right do you think that has a positive effect on like them de facto having like a head start and gaining market share above other people for, say, stake to DYDX just because they're completely separate LST that has nothing to do with stake DYDX. is like, doing really well and they're, like, the largest by market share by a wide margin. Or do you think there's no, like,
2: correlation there? I'd say there's a big correlation because as the market dominance of a particular asset increases, the value of the native token is likely increasing as well and, therefore, the incentives that they can pay out that being said i mean lido has a massive treasury of native tokens and we're seeing them go the completely opposite direction and saying no like we don't want to do any new markets all we want to do is eth and so you gotta wonder if the overhead and the headache of adding all of these new markets became kind of too much to manage in a decentralized manner and like kind of drew them away from their north star so it'll be interesting to see if stride kind of faces the same fate if
1: one market becomes dominant and then
2: it's like all
3: right
1: I have a crystal ball tinfoil slash tinfoil hat theory on why Lido cut the Solana ties and the other chain ties. And I think it's really because they were taking so much heat uh, for having 33% of stake that they needed to kind of prove, if you will, their alignment to the Ethereum community and saying, Hey, like we're just going to go all in only focus on, you know, making Ethereum our home and like we need it to be successful because it's the only, uh, you know, chain we're working with. That's my tinfoil hat theory on that piece. But I also think the, uh, Teren's original question, I think the other side of that is it's really just brand, right? Like if you have a very successful brand at having staked at them, you know, when you add these new chains, people are gonna be like, oh yeah, like I've heard stride, you know, they have a, a, like a structurally sound product, a strong team. Like I'm comfortable with holding this asset, um, because ultimately that that's going to matter a lot. Right. So I do think it's really the, the big win there is on the brand side. Yeah, I think that makes sense too, Dan. Once you get used to going to one place to mint a certain LST,
2: you probably just go back there. You see support for a new asset and you're like, all right, I trust these guys. I've, I've held this for a while. So um, definitely agree. But uh, on to the next uh, news item, I guess this one's kind of funny. GameStop said goodbye to their NFT marketplace, citing regulatory uncertainty. But my take on this is just it's because of zero volume. If you look at their their website over the past seven days, they've had like less than 40k of seven-day volume so i personally just think we're seeing the end of the era of every single web2 brand saying all right we're doing this thing with nfts and they're starting to realize all right this doesn't exactly work (laughs) you gotta need a a bigger plan than just launching something and it's hard to maintain volume and generate fees to actually sustain the marketplace but i don't know if anyone has something to add here but pretty pretty straightforward honestly it's
0: cause they didn't have points. I think that's where they missed the mark, to be honest. And once to once all of the web two companies find out about points, I think that would legitimately change everything. Um, but on a more serious note, I do think like everything you saw, like the last cycle will probably happen again this cycle. You know, like all of the city like Coca Cola, like we're coming to the metaverse, like all of the McDonald tweets. And everyone launching, like, random NFT loyalty programs. I do think that will eventually happen. And, like, kind of similar to how, like, at the start, it's hard to distinguish between, like, what, like, real adoption and what something that's, like, really city looks like. And over time, like, those lines blur. And eventually one day you're, like, you know, this is what genuine adoption looks like. I think we're just in the early innings, you know. Um, Not every company should, like, have an NFT marketplace. I don't want, like, McDonald's to launch, like, a, Tokenized NFT marketplace for you to trade like your Happy Meal toys or whatever you know. Um, but there is certainly a place for like some of these companies to in- incorporate blockchain technology into their sort of like everyday business. But please, just no, no metaverse stuff, please. But having said that, maybe the Apple Vision Pro will change everything.
3: Yeah, that's just kind of a huge gel for them as well because I guess the NFT market is kind of starting to rebound right now and maybe they could have gotten some volume back if they let it ride for a bit longer but i guess just time to cut the losses and move on um and it's also a good example of that maybe the nft market right now is just for super on chain people or there aren't really like regular persons who trying to trade some nfts it's just agents on chain and of course, they're not going to, have to go to, like, GameStop's platform to trade these things. Unless you're buying pudgy
1: penguins, because who, I mean, I'm pulling up a price chart here. Started 2024 20, floor is about 10, 10.8 ETH, and we're already up to 18 ETH. So who's buying pudgy pen, penguins? That's my question for you, Brick.
3: Smart people are. <laughs>
2: Matt called that out too. Like what? At the beginning of the year, I think, or even earlier than that, he was saying that, man, I missed my opportunity to get my forever pengu. And that was when they were at like nine or 10 ETH. I remember because Dan, you were trying to figure out where to check NFT floor prices. And you were like, I probably just totally ousted myself as a newbie.
1: I know. I know. And that's funny you say that. Cause I just quickly Googled and that, uh, that link that I pulled up did come up as a hot link. So it, that's further evidence that episodes out there somewhere. We need to go find it. Cause Matt's going to be pissed when he, uh, he sees what that price was.
2: Yeah. And back to Brick's point too. I definitely agree with uh w- what you were saying there. I mean, I've I've asked three Starbucks baristas about their NFT program and they literally have looked at me like I am absolutely crazy, like they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I definitely don't don't think many people who aren't just fully on chain DGENS are are eating into NFT loyalty programs. But hopefully that changes. We'll see. Maybe the saga Phone is the answer there. But uh Onto the next one, we had the Manta airdrop last week, but no one could really claim their airdrop because of a DDoS attack, allegedly, is what the the team was saying. It's really unclear. Actually, I I personally didn't even try using it at all, so not sure. I also saw some people on Twitter saying, like, oh, I tried to bridge back from Manta and wasn't able to, so not a great look there. Probably could have gone on the hot seat, but regardless, the token is trading at a $600 million market cap and $2.5 billion FDV. Um, I can rattle through these last few unless you, so you guys just jump in if you hear anything that you want to chime in on, but never mind as well. Uh, their execution client experienced a bug the other day, which has people asking on CT whether client diversity is a good or a bad thing. Cause I mean, on the one hand, it kind of slows down things. You can't move as nimbly. Uh, if you do have client diversity, but it also adds kind of extra layers of defense. If something in one client were to go hor- horribly wrong. So I kind of see both sides here. I personally don't have a strong opinion. So if either of you two do, definitely hop in. Um, But then lastly, we had the Ondo token launch. uh, Real world asset type uh, protocol that's basically bringing treasury yields on chain as well as some other real world asset yields on chain. So if you guys have anything you can add there, that would be great. But they launched a $2.6 billion FDV, which notably is greater than MakerDAO's $2 billion FDV. And only 14% of the token supply is allotted to the team and early investors with a 12-month cliff and four-year vest, which to be honest, I saw that and I was like, damn, that's that's pretty solid. But caveat, 33% is to protocol core contributors. So like it says like future contributors. So maybe that yeah, it gets added to the 14% or, or maybe it doesn't. I don't really know, but it also has a pretty long vest. So. Seems somewhat reasonable. And then the remaining fifty-two percent of the supplies for ecosystem growth. And they have about two hundred million dollars of TVL as of uh January twenty second today, as we're talking. Um I'm gonna put
0: on my mid-curve hat here. I'm not sure how attractive ondo is, right? Because their core product is I'm gonna forget the ticker here, but like basically tokenized like u uh, s d treasuries. Um, and That's kind of like the only thing they have, right? And say they have like a take rate on the yield generated, whereas you compare that to MakerDAO, right? And I think the common argument for something like MakerDAO is that they have this like seesaw dynamic. If there's like a high rate environment, then they're printing a lot from their RWAs. But if the rates go down, then the demand for leverage goes up. And they also like print cash that way, whereas like Ondo doesn't have like the other side of the seesaw. Right, all they have is something that would be beneficial in a high rate environment. Sure, you can make the argument that like you know if, like eventually Ondo owns like 500 billion worth of like tokenized treasuries on chain, and they have like a certain like take rate on the unit from that. Then it could be a good value proposition. But I think I like the dynamics of like the maker token just a lot more just because they have that like sort of like hedge against like various rate environments it's kind of similar to say robin hood right like robin hood has like five billion dollars on their balance sheet so in a high rate environment they're printing like a stupid amount of interest income but in a low rate environment like probably DJs come back people start like going on washing bets and like day trading options in crypto and so they benefit from like a higher amount of revenue from the payment of
1: order flow so they have this natural hedge which I just don't think Ondo has right now. Just to give you a little more context, there to the listener, um, Ren, you mentioned their products. They have USDY, which has about sixty-six million in TVL, and that is a U.S. dollar yield basket. Uh, and they have OSUG, which is comprised of U.S. Treasuries, and that's about one hundred and seventeen million in TVL. I also forgot to mention they have a points
2: program. So if you held usdc between yeah i know another friggin' points program i can see all you guys maybe laughing but if you held usdc or usdt from like january 23rd 2023 to the end of the year do you have like a claim on some points so yeah be sure to do that we'll or maybe don't do that i don't know i don't want to tell people to go click on some link but we'll put it in the show notes so you
1: can decide for yourself
2: i'm
0: just imagining on those like head of institutional sales going to like a 300 billion pension fund and say like Hey, we've managed to tokenize treasuries, but that's not the big unlock here. We have points, and he just sits there <laughs> waiting for a response. Eric, I
3: think he has something to say. Yeah, I-, I was just gonna say that maybe the maker comparison isn't quite apples to apples, since isn't this platform KYC it as well, and it's more of like a, I, guess, a normy slash institutional play on RWA, so it has a certain or i do understand why the market is excited about it because at the moment you really can't take any other or there aren't any other liquid plays uh, you can take on this sector so i do understand why it pumped and wasn't there also some kind of I i don't know if this was a rumor or confirmed or whatever but wasn't there some structure that for the first two weeks you could stake the token or something and then see more on though for that so i think that's created some by pressure as well
2: i think you're right i'm not 100 percent sure but i actually do think i recall people saying like 800 apr for like two weeks or something like that so i think yeah that that might be what you're relating to brick but uh i think that's a good place to head over to um our hot seat, cool throne segment, always a fun time. But before we do that, we do have a quick word from Kepler, one of the best wallets, in my personal opinion, in the Cosmos ecosystem. Thanks to our fantastic sponsor, DYDX. So we will see you in just a minute. All right, so today we're joined by Josh, the co-founder of Kepler. Uh, So we're super excited to have you on, Josh. Kind of get the the daily DYDX dose of information of what's going on in the Cosmos ecosystem. Do you mind giving us the quick, uh, I guess, elevator pitch for Kepler, which is one of the leading wallets in the Cosmos ecosystem?
4: Yeah, uh, Kepler wallet is a wallet that's built specifically for the interchain ecosystem. We started about uh, late 2019. Uh, basically, with the goal of uh, we feel like the puck is going towards multi-chain, cross-chain environments, uh, which we basically call the interchain uh, as as a whole. And felt like wallet experiences at the time, and even largely today, are still very focused on being single-chain. So uh, we have uh, various product lines that focus on um, anything from account management, key management, uh, extension staking, governance, etc. cetera. Uh, and yeah, that's Kepler in a bullet point.
0: Nice, appreciate the super quick intro. Um, so one part of the Cosmos ecosystem is that there's new app chains, new consumer chains coming on every month, right? How do you prioritize adding new features and chain integrations? Because that has got to be a, a bit of a headache with new versions of assets, chains, tokens coming online just every other week.
4: Yeah, uh, it is definitely one of the bigger challenges that we face uh, so far. And, you know, to be completely honest, I do think that one of the drawbacks of like this, you know, heterogeneous app chain ecosystem is the overhead for a wallet provider or these kind of like off chain info providers are much higher because there's a, you know, there's not really standardization, which could be a benefit for chains where it's like, oh, I get to change everything and, and optimize everything about the chain for my specific applications. But you know, from a wallet provider standpoint, let's say you have 32 chains who have a different take on, let's say, how to send a token, right? Like it gets pretty tough. So uh, we do have to pick and choose. Uh, some of it is just like economic viability from our standpoint. Um, you know the amount of users uh, and strategic importance of that application is also pretty significant uh and then you know there's obviously different levels of overhead in terms of the integration from a technical standpoint but also just operational and maintenance uh but largely you know to be completely honest i think it's largely driven by like the strategic value of um, of a given chain uh, for for us in the long term
2: Okay. Now I was looking at uh, the DYDX validator set the other day and I noticed that we, so we spoke with chorus one last week and they're the third largest on that chain. And Kepler is actually the fifth largest, but I noticed that Kepler has the largest number of unique delegators by quite a, quite a large margin. So I guess, could you explain embedded staking and, and what exactly that is and why you think it's a, you know,
4: a net positive for the decentralization of validator sets? Yeah. Uh I don't know if like embedded staking is the right term but uh at least just you know some sort of like vertical integration of the staking dashboard with the extension uh is kind of a key thing for us just because um yeah staking is such a core part of uh the Cosmos ecosystem and the Cosmos stack at large uh, I think you know, traditionally in Ethereum, you start off as a proof of work network and recently have, transi- you know, transitioned into a proof of stake. So I think there's a lot of uh, initial user base who are primarily focused on proof of, uh, you know, coming from this proof of work background of seeing ETH more as an asset, less familiar with uh, staking. Whereas Cosmos basically was bootstrapped with a, a, a proof of state network. So staking is such a core part of that. So, you know. Uh, The staking dashboard was something that we launched even on day one of all of our products. And yeah, in terms of the unique delegator count, uh, that's actually very surprising for us as well, because I don't think we necessarily track every single one of them. I wonder if some of that is like for airdrop hunting purposes. Uh, It could be, Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, But yeah, but at the same time, you know, the, the way we build products so far, you know, we haven't kind of given any specific favoritism for the validators that we run in-house. It's more, you know, we build these products. uh, We feel like we do a great job of running infra. And hopefully that resonates with a lot of users who uh, delegate to us. The other thing was, maybe it was very helpful that we also provided a built-in DYDX migration tool, right? So you didn't have to kind of search around different websites. You know, there's a lot of kind of dangerous phishing websites that, you know, that are out there. Uh, could be slightly sketchy, but uh, you know, from a user standpoint, it's like this. This official Kepler dashboard allows me to basically uh, take my um, ETH DYDX uh, and then transfer these into the uh, newer DYDX tokens on the DYDX chain. And yeah, from, from our standpoint, you know, this the, the core reason why they moved to this app chain was not just like the performance benefits and the benefits of an app chain. But also, you know, decentralization, right? And and for that to happen, uh, this decentralized way of staking uh the chain being run by delegators is such a big uh, factor. And, and the fact that Kepler was uh and is the largest kind of staking dashboard that DYDX token holders use to uh stake secure the chain, uh vote on kind of key governance proposals and, and set the direction is is yeah, that's, that's really amazing to see.
2: Yeah, that was a really good move, actually, because I know what you mean with the phishing links and, and kind of the headaches associated with migrating a token. So I'm sure that really, really helped for the user experience. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyways, Josh, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, I will be sure to let, drop links to your socials, Kepler socials, and uh, we definitely recommend people try out Kepler Wallet, especially if you plan on using DYDX. Uh, Josh, thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you, guys. All right. Now moving on to our
1: segment of Hot Seat Cool Throne. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I will kick things off with a Cool Throne this week. I'm putting Arbitrum uh, in the Cool Throne for the announcement of their Orbit expansion program, which allows anyone to have a self-service path to launching a custom Orbit chain uh, that settles to Ethereum. So an Orbit chain, real quick, is just an L2 or an L3 that's built using the uh, like Arbitrum's role framework called Orbit. Uh, The big announcement here is really around their fee for this, which is a 10% uh, take on the profit share, including MEV strategies uh, that for Arbitrum orbit trains that settle specifically to anything other than Arbitrum 1 or Arbitrum Nova. So if you had like an L3 roll up that settled down to like, again, anything other than Arbitrum 1, I, I guess in theory, you could build this on top of anything. Uh, then that is where this 10% profit share would come in. I think the more realistic outcome here is that you see orbit chains that are L2s settling down directly to uh, Ethereum. Um, and so this is kind of an interesting thing. I think one takeaway I had was that they mentioned this, the profit share will include MEV strategies and they left that fairly open-ended. You know, no one's really figured out how to capture MEV occurring on L2s yet. Uh, but that's obviously this huge point of conversation. And so that I kind of like how they just, you know, put a blanket statement on that. And it's like, kind of like, all right, when we get to, when we, when the time comes, we will also be including your MVP strategies in this profit share. The, and the other thing to point out here, I think before we get into some of the takeaways is that any L3s that settle onto Arbitrum 1 or Arbitrum Nova are still free and permissionless. So the, the fee does not impact those chains, um, I think like the kind of goal of why you'd build one and build an, uh, a roll up with using this framework is really just to get the dedicated block space, custom gas token, native account abstraction. Uh, you can plug into any DA layer you want, and you get some of this governance sovereignty. So, they, you know, we're seeing a rise of competing roll up frameworks. I think the most biggest and most popular today is probably uh, the OP Stack built pioneered by the Optimism team, but we're also seeing you know ZK Sync has their hyperchains. Uh, Polygon now has the Polygon CDK. You know, we're really seeing this tug of war between who can attract this developer talent. And one of the interesting things that Arbitrum is doing is rein- reinvesting some of this revenue into growth by creating a Arbitrum Developer Guild, uh, where the, a portion of the profits from this program will actually go to that guild, again, working to kind of uh, bootstrap some of those developer attention and, and really bring builders into the space. There's a decent number of Arbitrum Orbit chains today, though most of them are like smaller projects that you likely haven't heard of. I think a recent one that got a lot of attention was Zy Games. Um, they recently just did an, an airdrop round and launched an NFT and, and a few other things. Um, and so they're beginning to kind of get ahead of steam. I know they just announced a partnership with uh, Crypto Unicorn. So that one hits near and dear to to Sam's heart for any of our early episodes of uh, early episodes if anyone listened to the early episodes of Xerox Research, I think we talked a bit about crypto unicorns back in the day, and hopefully you
2: didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: too funny. And so, comparing their 10% fee to the market, you know, it's pr- relatively normal. So right now, Base is paying uh, their agreement is to pay 2.5% of Sequencer revenue, or 15% of Sequencer profit. Uh, so Arbitrum's uh, the orbit fear of 10% of profit is fairly in line with market price. The, I think the overarching question that spawns out of this is how does pricing work for these roll frameworks, and in, in, in terms of like a competitive landscape? You know, will it be a race to the bottom? Is there more of this branding ecosystem type moat? Uh, Ren, I know you spent some time thinking about this exact question, so I want to toss it over to you to get your thoughts.
0: Yeah, I think other than the slightly more like immaterial things such as like branding um there's also a sort of like technical things to consider when you're using various roll-up stacks like for example there's like a developer experience developer support there's definitely like a difference in the proof systems between optimism and Arbitrum. if you want like a good deep dive into that our research analyst Matt recently put out a great report on the differences between those two but I think the two key things here for why you would want to be part of these like Ecosystems for Optimism that would be the Optimism Superchain, and for Arbitrum that would be the Arbitrum Expansion Program would be shared sequencers and interoperability, right? Uh, with both of those two, even though there's still an active development or like not really figured out yet, especially on the interoperability front. You get seamless bridging, you get unified liquidity, you get access to the large number of existing users that both of these ecosystems have, and you also have interoperability between all of the roll-ups, right? Um, so if you are a roll stack today, if you are the Optimism Foundation or the Arbitrum Foundation, you're basically saying, hey, if you don't want to pay this like 10% fee on your profit, then you can just struggle and have a much harder time or you could just pay it get access to like our 10 billion dollars in tvl our like five hundred thousand users you can get like uh cross-chain abstraction blah blah all of that good stuff right none of that is a reality today but i think probably in five years or so we'll figure that all out and those network effects will be pretty hard to beat in my opinion i think one interesting question i have is that you mentioned that the sequencer profit share includes MEV strategies, right? Um, And I just thought of this. What happens if I am an arbitram orbit chain, I'm using a shared sequencer with two other chains. One of them is like a OP stack chain. One of them is a polygon CDK chain, right? And the shared sequencer is running like cross-chain MEV strategies. First of all, like who does that shared sequencer like Belong to it's not like this arbitrum orbit chain can say like okay everything that this share sequencer makes, um counts as like profits for my rollup. Even though a shared sequencer is kind of just sequencing, it's not like actually executing. So like the individual rollups like sequencers will actually execute and still retain the profit. But I think like the MEV thing will be really really hard to quantify, and I would not be surprised to see that when MEV capture gets figured out for l2s it's a relatively sizable number just looking at the dynamics on like ethereum mainnet today and i think the second thing i think about is with eip 4844 coming up and you're already seeing like all of these op stack roll-ups using celestia right for example uh, lyra recently announced that they're gonna pivot to celestia today Avo put out a tweet saying the future is or something like that, which I'm presuming is that they're going to use Celestia for data availability. How many of these rollups will decrease like the transaction fees so that eventually, like they take the same amount of money? Because if I was a rollup and I move from like Ethereum mainnet to Celestia, right, I would not decrease my transaction fees by ninety nine percent. I would probably only decrease it by fifty percent and. Like, there's surely some quantitative analysis you can run there and hope that that's cheap enough for the users, but you would generate a lot more revenue just because you didn't decrease it, like, all the way down by 99% compared to some other roll-offs. And so I think, like, these type of dynamics between, like, the DLA and the sequencer profit share, eventually or even now, you really have to start thinking about how that would affect the roll of token value accrual, especially for tokens such as, like, ARB and OP, because I think by now, the future is kind of clear. Like, there's just going to be like hundreds and hundreds of roll ups everywhere. And how roll up tokens will be able to capture the value based on someone using their quote unquote roll up stack will be pretty important to their long term like valuations.
1: Yeah, you make great points there, Ren. And um, one of the things that I think is interesting is how much savings should the roll up pass back to the user? And in the case of like an EVM roll up, I think that's a really good question because if I don't know if you can really, if you'll be able to enable the unique and new use cases that you see on say Solana, Um, like, I don't, I don't know if you just have cheaper fees, boom, you can run an order book and that's going to work perfectly fine. uh, Or if there'll still be other problems you run into. So the, I guess it depends on like the mission of the rollup, right? If you're trying to enable uh, like a on chain gaming or something of this nature, then maybe you do need those subset fees, But if not, like, yeah, you have a great point. Like, why not just uh, have a sub cent cost and then the users are transacting for 10 cents a pop? Like, I personally, as a user, wouldn't, I don't care if it's less than 20 cents. There's really no difference between a 20 cent transaction for me and a five cent transaction. Uh, Because even if I execute hundreds of transactions, it's still such a small number that it just is not going to bother me. but if I'm an order book and I'm a market maker, like hell yeah, I'm going to care if it's uh you know a tenth of a cent or one cent. That's a massive difference for me. So I, I think it really just comes down to what you're trying to build as a rollup. But like, let's say Arbitrum pivoted to Celestia, like yeah, I, I you could almost argue don't change it at all.
2: I actually said something similar to this on Twitter the other day, and funny enough, because we're talking about Orbit Sobe, uh, who's a contributor to Zai he was saying, no way, that is absolutely crazy. And I was like, why? And he was just like, that's price gouging users. That's totally wrong. And I was just like, okay, well, when you put it like that, it's kind of true, but it's kind of not. So I see where he's coming from, but I totally agree. You might as well increase revenue for your DAO in the early stages like today. So that way you have a longer runway and initiatives to fund in, in the future. But a way, you, you mentioned something too right in there that I find really interesting. You're like, all right, if everyone is using Celestia and then you've got ETH for Settlement, like what does the actual token of this rollup and the modular stack do? You know, cause you even have like external sequencer networks that you're plugging into that have their own native token. Like everything's got a token and there's only so much value that can be returned to those token holders. So I think that's going to be one of the big questions people need to think about if this modular future of thousands of rollups actually is the way
1: things play out. You got me really thinking like, is that price gouging? Like, I I tend to think not, you're just increasing your margins. And it's like, I think price gouging, I think of being a, uh, hand sanitizer producer right when COVID sets starts. And instead of charging $10 per, uh, you know, dispenser of hand sanitizer, now I'm charging a hundred for no reason at all. Other than I know there's impending demand. Whereas if I'm just increasing the if I'm just reducing my costs and not even changing the cost to the end user, right? I'm just making myself a more efficient business and the user is not paying more. I don't think you could argue that as price gouging, but I would need to think through that more. I I had this like
0: realization the other day too. So I know like Uber gets brought up a lot in like crypto discussions and there are like some versions of on-chain Uber, right? Um, teleport. I'm, uh, and like, you know, like Uber, like, sure like there's a middleman which is uber and teleport like kind of removes the middleman like to some extent but if i'm not wrong they still utilize like um ride sharing like companies or like maybe like sort of like more local like ride sharing companies but basically like if i was like a vc and i was looking at like uber and teleport right i wouldn't say like Teleport is price gouging users less. I think if I put my VC hat on, I'll be like, congratulations. You've made like a less profitable version of Uber. Like, why would I want that, right? (laughs) Uh, I hate to say but I think like people should still be building businesses. Businesses are here to make money and you have a fiduciary duty to like your shareholder. And I guess in crypto's case, probably token holders. And so I, I really don't think it's like price gouging. Not everything should be like, as cheap as possible, where like you are pricing whatever you are offering at
2: the same as like a cost basis. Yeah, for added context too, that was I was saying like why not just increase like kind of the scalar uh so charging user fees more on Arbitrum when they start these incentive programs is an idea I brought up on Zero X research last week because I was just like bring in more revenue and at least re-scalp some of that value you're dishing out because dad you actually might have missed it he was gone for a week or so so basically Arbitrum funded a new long-term incentives program worth like about a hundred million dollars so we were just kind of walking through that and how it's pretty wild how big these incentive programs are getting but uh with that being said, that was a little
1: bit extra. That one extra. does feel maybe like price gouging. It's kind of kind of similar, right? Cranking up the uh, the cost to the end user because I know there's uh, demand coming. But um, broadly, I think I I get where you're coming from. It's like price gouging with subsidization. So,
2: you know, it's it's a middle ground. It's a middle ground.
1: (laughs) What's up, everyone? March is approaching fast, and I want to give you another reminder not to miss out on DAS London. It is coming. It's right around the corner, and it's in March from the 18th to the 20th. We have three full days of content. This is your chance to bump shoulders with some of the world's top executives and have open dialogue with both attendees and speakers. We're going to be focusing on a range of topics that I'll let Ren discuss for you.
0: First on the list, we have Bitcoin Catalyst, the Halving and Spot ETF. Next, we have a view from the buy side, from investors' on things like strategy, portfolio allocation, and more. We also have a topic on RWA's tokenization and stable points, which I think we can all agree are going to play a large role in crypto's future. We'll also talk about global regulatory frameworks like compliance best practices and the evolution of global standards that are shaping the global investment landscape. We'll also have someone from an institutional fund to talk about infrastructure such as banking and payments with financial giants like Visa and JP Morgan. And last on the list, the macro case for digital assets. So don't miss out on this monument event. Seats are limited, so be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London. Brad you got the Hot
2: Seater, Cool Throne.
3: Yeah, I got um, actually the near Devs in uh, Cool Throne. I know um, they've been quite busy lately. Uh, Nier already released some super cool stuff last year. Uh, Most notably the blockchain operating system, kind of standard if you want to call it them. But it basically allows uh, users on near to interact with other chains um, and that whole process kind of gets abstracted away or you wouldn't even know that you're doing something on another chain, which I think is super cool. And then... Now they've recently announced that their phase 2 of their sharding roadmap is going to go on testnet and that's expected to go live in Q2 this year. Um, And in short, it lowers validator requirements and improves the performance of each of Nier's shard and in the long term also enables more shards to be introduced to the network. Uh, And then also NIR is working on Two components which are or I believe that are going to be big narratives this year or I guess DA layers are already a big narrative but I think that uh, trend is going to continue so basically other rollups can use near as a DA layer and there are some pretty cool price uh, benefits to that so according to some estimations and Analysis done by the like project contributors um, posting data through NEAR should be around thirty times cheaper than when doing it through Celestia, and then up to eighty-seven thousand times cheaper than like Ethereum's current implementation, uh, and also NEAR's data throughput or the way. Near scales its tra- data throughput is a bit different from these other uh, implementations where near can just add more shards uh to increase the number and now currently at four shards, uh the throughput is around sixty megabytes per second. and then lastly uh which I personally think is the coolest thing that they've been like working on is uh in partnership with Igen Layer. They are looking to introduce this fast finality layer, which will basically leverage IGEN layer restakers um, and enable rollups to first settle on near, and after that to Ethereum. And that should decrease the time to finality to around four seconds, which is a pretty notable uh, improvement if you look at current implementations uh and hopefully like more market participants will start paying more attention to near uh as these things start to matter materialize more and i think a, somewhat of a problem for near has uh historically been that like DeFi activity never really took off on the chain uh and now they're kind of pivoting to being more tech enable if you can say that and also, trying to onboard more uh, just basic consumer-facing dApps. And it's really noticeable because, like, okay, I, I know we've talked about this before on, uh, on the podcast, but, like, maybe active addresses isn't the best uh, metric to look at. But anyways, the chain has been in the top three across, like, all the notable chains in terms of active addresses for like a year now or maybe not a year but like anyway for a long time um and i think that's just a testament of like them starting to execute on their strategy uh and going kind of a different and interesting route when compared to these other chains that are mostly competing on the DeFi front still although dpin and all this stuff is getting introduced as well uh But it's a cool way to, or cool to see um, kind of a blockchain getting implemented more and more into everyday life, if you can put it that way. But yeah, that's the stuff I've been thinking about lately.
0: I want to say that Kaikai is probably like one of the premier like crypto consumer apps today. And there's not a lot of like good consumer apps that have an actual use case, are widely adopted, and do a pretty good job of abstracting away the sort of, like, crypto component of the experience. And I think I has done that really well in sort of providing this, like, shopping experience um, enabled by crypto, right? Um, another thing is the fast finality layer. I may be getting some technical things wrong, but I think that will become increasingly important in the future, as roll-up block times probably get shorter and shorter, and maybe even as the entire crypto space trends towards shorter block times, and also with the advent of shared sequencers, I would think that there are probably benefits to a fast finality layer when integrated with a shared sequencer. This is just like the beginning of a very random thought, so I'm not super sure, but in my head, I think there are probably benefits um, to having a fast finality there for roll-ups or, like, these different networks with, like, a shared sequencer.
1: Yeah, is really cool. Zero X Pibbles has been hammering that to us for months now. Um, I believe he just recorded an episode with Yano, uh, with, I think, one of the Nier co-founders, I'm not sure which one, and that's going to come out on Empire within the next week or so. So definitely excited to tune into that one. Uh, I mean, they've been doing a lot of great innovations with the boss um, and they're still pioneering that sharding roadmap that was the original, you know, Ethereum roadmap. So it's cool to see uh, some of these ideas really get taken to completion. I really like how they're, I don't know, I go back and forth. It's like pick your lane and like dominate at it or try to do a little bit of everything to, you know, whether it be stay in the narrative or just have a more diverse product offering, yeah, uh, because, Brick, you mentioned that they are they do have the capability to be a DA layer, which obviously that's a very hot narrative right now. Uh, Celestia is proving that the data gets more and more available while market prices go down. Um, no, I'm kidding. But it's interesting because I haven't seen It's going to be interesting if people actually use it, right? I don't know if it's going to get any meaningful adoption or attraction at all, but it's interesting to see that it's a possibility, right? I, I think that's probably pretty important for a general purpose L1 is to be a multifaceted, uh, foundation
3: for things to be built on top of. Yeah. I just think a big problem for them has been the inability to communicate clearly, what they're trying to accomplish exactly. As you said, it, it seems that they're going into like a hundred different directions, but when you really start thinking about it, it's, uh, pretty well thought out um, like way to provide value add products in a way like you're trying to abstract away stuff from the end user to make it simpler also onboard like this real world use case apps as well as then provide some info on the back end yeah that's a lot to like do but at the same time I don't know I feel that if we're going to say a single layer can do it though, we should mention near there as well.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. Sam, who you got in the hot seat or cool down this week? Uh,
2: I've got GBTC in the hot seat. Um, so there's a good thread that we can link in the show notes from 0 Zergs talking about the Widowmaker trade that everyone was talking about in 2021. Uh, basically bitcoin was pretty hard to get exposure over or to get exposure to within a brokerage account so there was often a premium to gbtc relative to nav or the net asset value uh under management so basically every one share of gbtc was worth the equivalent dollar amount of like one and a half times let's say so there's you know you buy a gbtc share and theoretically once shares vest in 12 months you're able to redeem it for more than one dollars So basically the trade was you have, let's say, $10 million in cash. You borrow $30 million in Bitcoin against it, oftentimes from lenders like BlockFi, which obviously this story doesn't end well. But they deposit that Bitcoin into GBTC and then they wait 12 months until their share is best to actually capture that spread. And the problem was is that the interest expense uh, was denominated in Bitcoin. And as you'll recall, the loan was levered, so the interest expense is also levered. Uh, So when Bitcoin kept running... Uh, The interest expense also kept growing. And then on top of that, people figured out new ways to get exposure to Bitcoin, whether it be, you know, micro strategy, minor stocks, Coinbase Bitcoin, if you want to go actual get get actual Bitcoin. So flows kind of slowed into GBTC. Uh, And so that premium to uh, net asset value actually turned into a discount. So then when those shares vested those investors who had that trade on who thought they were delta neutral actually wound up taking it on the chin. So fast forward to today. Um, and basically, we lost 3AC, we lost Celsius, BlockFi, uh, a lot of market makers, honestly, in the industry, uh, trad five players, and of course, FTX and Alameda. And now we are seeing, uh, you know, 10,000 Bitcoin get sent to Coinbase Prime every single day from none other than the FTX bankruptcy estate. So that is why I have GBTC in this, uh, this hot seat this week. Over a billion dollars of sell pressure of uh, the GBTC outflows that we've seen have been FTX's, according to Corndesk and uh, Bloomberg, I believe it was who posted that. And they still have 22 billion dollars uh, of AUM, and they have a one and a half percent fee versus you know 30 bips for pretty much every other product available on the market. So it's it's a little bit tough to assume that these flows will stop, even though that's what a lot of people are hoping for. I think, you know, those high fees hopefully, uh, push any of the outflows out into cheaper products, but I also think it's likely we see some market participants also exit after getting just absolutely ringed on that, on that trade. Um, but GBTC and the hot seat might be a little bit harsh, but more so maybe it should be the SEC, uh, or maybe trad five players playing games, uh, you know, with this premium and discount to net asset value in the GBTC trust. So. Honestly, like we really just needed a spot ETF sooner and it's unfortunate that it didn't happen, but we are certainly dealing with the repercussions of that today with Bitcoin under 40K after, you know, pretty much the most monumental moment in Bitcoin's history since it was created and launched in the spot ETF in the US. So I thought that warranted a hot seat.
1: I want to go ahead and share a screen real quick. Uh, This is by Apollo. Um, They are... I generally have no idea what they are. I saw the the Bloomberg ETF guys tweet this out. This source and it's a it's a really cool chart. So it's the amount of Bitcoin held by uh, what are now ETFs over time. And so this huge uh, light blue bar is obviously GBTC, the Grayscale product. And then when the ETFs launch, you can see kind of how those funds, the fu- flow of funds, has changed through time. Uh, so we're recording this on uh, the 22nd here, so Monday, and it hasn't update updated for the current day. Uh, which definitely is some irony about how we can get data uh, on blockchains in real time. And yet when we're trying to track these ETF flows, it's like uh, the, the data is on like T plus one, which is hilarious. But side note, um, it is cool to kind of see that the we are actually above the net flows, uh, right? So we started with around maybe 600, and, uh, 600 or so thousand Bitcoin, uh, maybe 625-ish, and now we're closer to 650 as of last Friday. Um, but you can see that you know, Scale is clearly losing uh, some of its market share in this space, um, and it's you know rightfully so. I think the the fees are probably going to push people out, uh, as well as the trade that Sam had discussed. But I do think it's a really cool chart to see that uh, in a visual format.
3: My takeaway from this was just that like, how can you say you are a an institutional investor, and then blow up your funds some on one trade. Like it seems that all of the big guys did that last cycle, and that's just amazing to me.
0: Hey, you gotta put some respect on the legend Bill Huang's name. All right, I think over time most people come to realize that like whatever like portfolio managers, risk management that people in Chat buy, tell they have like, I feel like most like guys and portfolio managers are probably just at heart and. Bill Huang is, like, a perfect example of that, right? Like, every three months, I look at, like, the Grayscale Solana Trust and ask myself, like, who's buying this at a 600% premium? But it just always stays at a 600% premium. And so, like, first, the demand is obviously there. And second of all, you know, like, I think a famous example in the world of travel would be, like, a carry trade, right? Where you borrow in one currency and then you um, sort of, like, put it in the treasuries of, like, Another currency, and you just like do that forever and hope it doesn't blow up. But very often, or not very often, like it does blow up like maybe like every 10 years. And when it does blow up, it blows up like pretty darn spectacularly. But everyone just sees he's like, Oh my god, I can like borrow this at like a lower interest rate, I can put it into this at like a higher interest rate if this just keeps on like turning along like it's going to be perfectly fine and I'm going to make like whatever percentage like every year and I'm going to walk away with a nice payday but it's fine when it works and when it unwinds it's just the ugliest thing ever right and I think you kind of just saw the same example of that happening in
2: crypto this is probably a dumb question but I'm thinking through this live but I get it like if you borrow the Bitcoin deposit in GBTC obviously you're short Bitcoin but if like why not sell the shares short of gbtc in order to remain delta neutral and just capture the spread from when you want to like like if you saw the the premium closing in at par and you're worried about it going negative like i i don't understand why you wouldn't hedge that position there and why everyone blew up like i guess yes you need margin against that short position on gbtc but I feel like a lot of this is poor risk management, but there must just be something I'm missing here. I would guess that it was
0: pretty darn expensive to short yep. GBTC, which is why that trade doesn't work. Okay, yeah, because then you're getting blown out on interest expense on both sides. Yeah, similar to like when all of the funds were like shorting GME, I bet you that was like ridiculously expensive.
2: Okay, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, well... Anyways, glad GBTC is kind of in its closing stages, and hopefully that uh, hopefully that uh, some of the players we lost as a result of that incident can uh, fully recover and make it back into the industry. But Dan or Ren, I don't think you've given your hot seat or cold
3: thrown yet.
0: Yep. Uh, this week I have Orca and the Cousin. So in November of last year, they passed their fee switch and they finally got around to implementing it. Roughly one week ago, their fee switch is twelve percent of the fees going to the DAO on any pool with a fee of zero point three percent or higher. Um and so Orca has a relative dominance, I would say in terms of like Solana or like liquidity within the Solana ecosystem. More than seventy percent of LP fees are generated from Orca, and for Alcoin pairs, that's more than ninety percent. So they are in like a pretty good spot as far as DEXs go. Um, and yeah, they finally managed to implement this fee switch. There are like a lot of numbers to work off, but if you look at like the past seven days and run the numbers, they would have made roughly four hundred and forty thousand in revenue. And if you look at the past 30 days and if you look at the numbers, they would have generated a theoretical like 2.32 million in fee revenue. I
1: know Dan's laughing because I... (laughs) Nobody loves annualizing numbers (laughs) more than Ren. Not a single human (laughs) on this earth. I feel like I do this
0: way too much on 0x. But (laughs) if you analyze those numbers, that's roughly (laughs) around like... 30 million a year for Orca. And big disclaimer here, that's like not going to happen. Like just cause December, like end of November was like peak Solana, like meme coin mania with with Um but I also know I say this line a lot. But if market activity picks up, <laughs> it's possible to see those numbers again. Okay. Either way, um, potentially 30 million in revenue we look at the past 30 days which probably isn't going to be the norm for the next few months or so and if you look at orca's current market cap of 260 million or so that gives it like a pretty nice pe ratio of 9.3 which is like pretty attractive in like crypto terms like you know, that's comparable with like the fundamentals king maker and so you know i'm not telling you to like ape orca right now but i would say like pay really close attention to like Solana Dex Volume and activity, especially for those uh pools on Orca that have like a higher than zero point three percent feature. Um and I feel like it could add up really, really quickly, especially because Uniswap, which has like struggled to turn on its research for a really, really long time, still hasn't turned it on. You know, and Uniswap is trading at a probably four plus billion market cap while orchestra is sitting at like one twentieth of that, and it's got, like, the Solana narrative, it has a Feasage narrative, and you're seeing a lot of other, like, dexes. For example, CowSwap recently passed the vote to test different Feasages. There's, like, a few different models that they're exploring, given they're sort of, like, slightly unique, different. Uh, they're slightly different from, like, a standard DEX, but overall, I think, like, a Feasage is beneficial for a token's and obviously, value accrual. Um, Garland put out this great study for a Uniswap protocol fee switch, and there's sort of this like negative reflexive cycle that could potentially occur. Uh, this sort of like doom spiral, right? You introduce a protocol fee switch, LPs get less fee revenue, um, so they put out liquidity, and because there's less liquidity on that dex, then that dex sees less volume, and that dynamic just kind of keeps on spiraling, um, and that. Dex eventually dies. Um, so Garnet's numbers that they ran for a potential Uniswap research say that if a 10% protocol fee was implemented, Uniswap would see a 10.7% decrease in liquidity and 5.25% decrease in total volume. And the bulk of that decrease in total volume is due to a decrease in MEV volume, not normal user, like retail user volume. Uh, similarly, if Uniswap had a 15% protocol fee. They would see a negative or a 16.25% decrease in liquidity and an 8% decrease in total volume. And so basically, the analysis is that core volume is relatively insensitive to fees, partially because Uniswap has such a large liquidity advantage over other DEXs, which I think Orca also has a similar dynamic on Solana. But MEV volume is really sensitive to a decrease in liquidity, which is why Uniswap's total volume would decrease by still like a relatively substantial amount. Whereas MEV is not as established on Solana yet, I would say, just by looking at the JITO dashboard, that's definitely picking up. For example, that one DAO that like aped $3 million worth of with and like someone paid like a I think it was like a one thousand sort of, or maybe ten thousand. I could be off. our order of magnitude, but like it's definitely starting to become apparent. Um, but I just think like if you're gonna turn on a fee that you might as well turn it on like right before a bull market, and like that those cash flows could potentially become like pretty crazy for a few protocols.
1: Are they directly giving it back to the token?
0: No, they are not. Um, they are holding it in a DAO treasury. And so, yeah, I did ask this question in our ad on the stack the other day. From a fundamental perspective, if a protocol turns on a fee switch, should there be a difference if, number one, they hold all of those fees from the fee switch in the DAO treasury versus option two, they distribute 100% of the fees from the fee switch to token holders and you can claim it like every week? You can set it up like however you want to and the question was should there be a difference in the valuation of those two my gut feeling is no but i think you could also lean towards that the one that gets distributed like automatically should have a slightly higher valuation because there is like a potential roadblock to number one right it's possible that governance does not vote to distribute 100% of whatever accrued fees from the fee switch. there's definitely like a time delay there um but for Orca, all of the fees are held in USDC, so it's like not that big of an issue.
3: Yeah, I guess this gets kind of theoretical, but I think you could argue that if they hold everything in the treasury and they have good investment opportunities, then the token should get the higher valuation if they're managed to invest the capital successfully. But I don't know, like what does good. Treasury management, or what now invests well into opportunities? So that's kind of out there. Uh, and based on what you said, yeah, I definitely agree, agree that like if the cash really flows into, or the value really flows into token holders' hands, then I think that should warrant a higher valuation. Yeah,
1: I mean, I feel like you can't necessarily pull from TradFi analogs here just because this piece is a bit different. But, I mean, if you're, like, distributions of token holders are probably fairly similar to dividends. And if you run, like, a DCF, I'm a bit rusty on this, but I'm I'm pretty sure you're implicitly assuming that the cash flows are distributed back to the shareholders. Um, So that would kind of be like, you know, if you ran a P&L, and for the DAO, um, you know, you you could run a DCF on that, and you're you're making the assumption that the shareholders or the token holders in this case are getting the <clears throat> getting the earnings, and that flows back to them. Uh, so from a valuation standpoint, I think you're probably going to treat them equally. However, if a DAO had a long history of just like accruing a treasury and doing nothing with it, I think you can make the argument to like discount that maybe to some. Uh, apply some discount to that because it, you know, if it decreases the likelihood that you're ever going to see that cash as a token holder, then maybe it's just not as valuable to you. Um, But I also agree to Brick's point there, like in a lot of, using this like very analogous TradFi mindset, you know, these are just startups and there aren't many startups, if any, that distribute value to shareholders until they have grown and matured. Um, because the opportunity cost of not reinvesting in future growth is so high. Um, and so, generally, I think it makes more sense. Uh, and I mean, I know I get some pushback on this one quite often when we bring it up, but like if you're a small DEX today, especially on Solana, where order books are probably going to start winning, you know, wouldn't you want to be investing in like building your own order book that can compete with these other big guys that are doing the same right now? Is kind of like the mindset I would have.
3: The other question I have for you, Ren, or er, Brick, go ahead, yeah, before we ch- I change the subject. Nah, I was just going to go on a rant about how protocols uh, distribute their own cash flow way too early and, like, destroy their growth opportunities.
4: On
2: top of that, on top of that too, I just got to say, like, <clears throat> I don't think any decks outside of Jupiter on Solana has any type of network effect, to be completely honest. Like, And on top of that, I don't think I can think of a single example of a DEX that's really been able to retain its token value outside of Uniswap, and I would attribute that to their brand. And I think Jupiter definitely has the best shot there. So I think hurting its liquidity base is the absolute worst thing Orca could do because that volume naturally, because the main DEX destination on Solana is an aggregator, if those price fills get worse, which they will, then that volume is going elsewhere. So
1: I think that's an absolutely terrible idea for Ren, did, did the uh, team mention anywhere, like, where I'd love to read this if there's like a a postmortem, or it's probably the wrong verbiage here, just like an explanation of how they implemented this? Um, just because I know from the going through the curve data in depth that like implementing a fee switch for a decentralized exchange with hundreds, if not thousands of pools is a very non-trivial event, right? Because every pool has say at least two assets in it. And the fee is commonly collected in either the buying token or the selling token. And then those, those tokens stay in the pool. So when you get, if I uh, you know, go to a curve pool and swap one ETH for 2000 USDC, um, then I will get back say 1,990 USDC and the, those 10 USDC will be retained in the pool. And to collect those, Um, curve has what they call like burners, which just are, I think of like a fee collector. So it goes to every pool and withdraws the, the fees that are sitting in that pool still. So in my, the case of my trade, it would pull out that 10 USDC. Um, and then again, in the case of curve, fees are collected and distributed to token holders in the, in a singular asset. Right. And so there's hundreds, if not thousands of pools, all with various assets in them. The fees are collected in different assets. Uh, so now, when you burn all these fees, they get sent to a collector address in you know tens or hundreds of a- of different assets, and so you have to per- swap those all back in to one asset, and then distribute that one asset to the token holder. So that is like a very complex process where you're making many trades and pulling and removing liquidity from pools, um, and on the tr- making the trade size. Some of those trades are very large, right? You can imagine that some of the larger assets or the more popular assets that are collecting fees over and over and over again from many trades you when you have to swap that into a different asset that's a meaningful trade therefore you're exposing yourself to getting front run or any other kind of mev um so i I say all that because i want to set the scene that like collecting fees is not as simple as it sounds on paper uh so i was curious if the orca team had kind of discussed their challenges or if they've walked through their process or maybe they're only doing a subset of pools from the onset
0: yeah, um, this is directly from the Discord, and someone from the team said it was a process requiring lots of engineering time. So there wasn't like a specific like date where they implemented it. It sounded like that it was quite a grind. Um, just quickly scanning through the Discord message, they have a collect protocol fees authority address for Orca's world Foods, which are basically like their liquidity pools, and then they have a pool where the fees are received from the pools themselves before being sent to the next wallet, right? And then the next wallet is where all of the tokens get swapped and shared into the separate allocations, whether that's like the climate fund or like the sort of DAO treasury. And so it is like, uh, the TLDR said, I, it does sound like it's pretty hard. It was pretty hard to implement for Orca too. um, And then definitely agree with like everyone's points here that like, protocols should not be turning on a v-switch that early uh especially when you don't have like any network effects or you don't have like a very natural mode right and dex's liquidity are so important for dex's and once like it's it's very it's fairly reflexive in nature and i do think that reflexivity becomes i want to say even more apparent uh in like the current market conditions Maybe in like a bull market, you can like kind of hide some of the reflexivity just because of like increased activity. But definitely like in more muted market conditions, it becomes a lot more obvious. I would say like maybe one catalyst on the roadmap or the usage would be Solana airdrops. I think Jupiter's airdrop is coming on the 31st of January. I wouldn't be surprised to see. I think Camino said just there's just going to be... Before the end of Q1, there's probably a few more out there that will occur before Q1. I don't know, maybe Tensor or Meteora or maybe um, IO.net. So I, I would presume all of those added a pretty sizable amount of volume to Solana Dexas, uh following the trend of what happened during Gito's airdrop. So that could probably be a boost too.
1: Yeah, I... I... It's interesting that they're collecting but not uh, like distributing to token holders because again, then you can be you could have created this useful product. Now you implement a fee switch where that goes back to the DAO and then use those funds as a community to like build new initiatives or reinvest in growth. I mean, to Brick's point, you know what DAO has done a good job of that is a fair a fair point and a fair question. But um, I think the big thing is really it's just like it's probably almost always in crypto at this point still too early to be distributing to token holders now i think there are some edge cases right like for example we used just i was just talking about curve curve has distributed over 100 million dollars to token holders and for them it they did it in a way that it made sense like the token plays a very core role in the ecosystem with the ve tokenomics um and that the distributions to token holders are used to incentivize the locking of curve and that's like a very important piece of the puzzle for them so they kind of devised a token system uh or token design around this like distribution mechanism and so they kind of like intertwined it and made it it honestly made it make make sense so that's much different in my mind than saying like having a you know random dap that just uh, has a great product and they collect revenue and they just like funnel off a portion of that revenue to a governance token. Like that is a much different, uh, like a much different setup. And that's where I mostly have grievances with.
2: That That's mind boggling to me, that stat over 100 million. And I think that answers the question of does it get a premium if it goes to the treasury or does it get a premium if it gets returned? And I think the answer to that question is it's better off going to the treasury for sure because people investing in crypto today do not care about 10, 20, 30, 40% yield. They care about 10, 20, 30, 40 Xs. But I think that day will come. I just think that day is not today. I also
0: just want to briefly emphasize what Sam said just now. There is a really, really big difference between volume origination dynamics between Ethereum and Solana. On Ethereum, like a lot of people actually go to like Unisop's front end um, just swap their tokens, whereas on Solana, all of them basically go to Jupiter, right? The equivalent of that on Ethereum would be everyone going to 1inch and no one swapping through Unisop. And that has really implica- really important implications for if we turn on the return on a Feasage because if Unisop turned on a Feasage, I think that's relatively okay because you still have like control over sort of like volume that's routed through your protocol and that's like relatively stickier whereas for orca you know it's just like jupiter's routing algorithm going through all of these decks, and whoever has like the better fill you get like a portion of that trade routed to that deck. so probably a equivalent fee switch for uniswap and orca has a disproportionately larger impact on orca's liquidity than for uniswap given those like sort of order flow dynamics
1: and the presence of order books i think right like maybe there's a day where amms can outperform order books i, I think most people probably just would disagree with that but maybe that day comes but that day is cert- <clears throat> certainly not today and i think you're seeing phoenix for example do some pretty crazy volume with a small amount of liquidity um and so i, I think that even further exacerbates what you're talking about, Ren.
0: Yeah, I'll follow up there that if you actually look into the data of which pools generate the most fees for the fees which they are, like, mostly still, like, so, or, like, USDC, kind of like the large, like, altcoins or stables pools, rather than, like, the meme coins.
2: Really? Even more so than Bonk? I would have guessed Bonk was number one, and it wasn't even close over the last two months. I need to double-check that,
0: but... Actually, I could be wrong. I'm not sure if I sorted it, by <laughs>
4: actually,
2: I'll, I'll double check it. I'll get to everyone in the show notes or something. <laughs> but yeah, I—I I mean, maybe I'm wrong too, though, because now that I think about it, if Bonk was surpassing Sol in USDC pair on Solana, that would be—that'd be pretty remarkable.
1: Especially, I mean, I know Bonk had a pretty crazy run. There's no doubt about it. But uh, you know, Sol is a much larger cap asset that also hit you know, a 10x in the last three months, so. Okay, I I got the data. Um,
0: Total fees generated over the lifetime, I don't have like 7-day or 30-day fees, but Solana with has generated 4.6 million, so USDC has generated 4.3 million, so Bonk has generated... 3.7 3.7 million and then there's like a another so usdc pool but it's like a 0.05 percent fee which has generated 3.6 million so like i would say like both are equally important between like meme coins and like sort of like so usdc or like lst like usdc pairs and both play like a equally important role in generating free revenue
2: interesting huh uh, that's crazy. Whiff's on the top of that list. I mean, I would guess that looking at my timeline, but given the how much higher in terms of market cap Bongcoin, that's that's pretty bad.
0: It's cause the main Seoul Wiff Fu has a one percent free rate, but the Seoul Bong Fu has a zero point three percent fee rate.
2: Okay, wow, that's yeah, that's a hefty fee, but you guys ready to call it? Now we're just rambling about random statistics
1: <laughs> uh well you somebody mentioned the uniswap fee switch and i just pulled up our board five million in revenue for the front end fee switch that goes to uniswap labs pretty insane that that makes
2: sense though right
1: like i feel like yeah it does uniswap's brand like they
2: made that brand in that front end and they operated to this day like i feel like that's a totally fair place to put a fee switch Which, i agree i went on my rant already so. All right, let's get out of here. Thanks, Brick and Ren, for coming on. We will see you guys here next week. Cheers. Hey, everyone. Thanks for watching today's 0x
0: research episode. I wanted to take a second and remind you about an upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so hit the link in the description and use the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London.